Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. In our 22 episodes, we've had guests from across the profession. We've heard from entrepreneurs, academics, thought leaders, and folks with a variety of perspectives, ranging from in-house to big law and back. This is our third and final recap. As you know, we've been attempting to pull out a few key themes from our initial set of conversations. So while we give our guests a summer break, I wanted to share some of my favorite moments from the podcast so far and some thoughts from my own journey that were triggered by the conversations with our guests. Today's episode is on the topic of the journey itself, the path that pioneers have followed. Let's go back to the purpose of this podcast itself, which is to share the stories of change agents in the legal space. As we heard in the last recap, stories have the power to inspire, to comfort, to facilitate change, and to build new behaviors. So hearing the personal stories of our guests has been fascinating for me. Today, we're going to explore the commonalities among the paths of our guests and see what lessons we can pull out for our own journeys. Now, in many ways, an individual journey is just that, individual. Each one of our guests has followed the beat of their own drummer. Yet, in listening to their various stories, certain patterns begin to emerge. Now, it's certainly true that some have followed what, by all outward appearances, seems to be a very traditional trajectory, yet have used that trajectory to attempt to change the way we think about the delivery of legal services. Jeff Carr, for example, falls into that category. I would put myself in that category. Many of our guests, though, have started on what appears to be a traditional path, but at some point veered into other directions, becoming legal tech startup founders, alternative service provider pioneers, and the like. One of the things I've enjoyed most about these discussions is hearing the moments that sent them in a different direction. For example, Jason Barnwell and his story of pitching a way to be more efficient in handling an M&A deal and being turned down. Or Mark Cohen and his story of meeting Tom Friedman for lunch, which sent him down the path of starting an LPO that ultimately led to ClearSpire. So yes, serendipity can play a large role, but I'm getting ahead of myself. While over the years, the path of innovators in the legal profession has become more traveled, even today it is not the most populous path. It is certainly true that there are more options now than ever to contribute to the rethinking of the industry. Nevertheless, everyone who has joined us has found a way to contribute in a non-traditional way to a different way of thinking about legal service delivery and the ways in which value can be delivered to clients. In a moment, we're going to talk about three themes we heard. But if we're going to reduce it to one word, it's curiosity, the willingness to take that leap of faith or explore a different avenue out of an abiding interest in how things can be improved. It resonates with me because one of our earliest refrains in our own innovation journey at Seifarth was, there has to be a better way. This statement is so powerful because it both expresses dissatisfaction with the ordinary world and expresses an optimistic belief that things can be better. This incredibly simple statement can unlock entirely new ways of thinking, doing things, in the case of our guest, new career paths and ways to transform the profession. In itself, the belief that things can be better is a call to one's curious side. As I said, some of our guests have followed an outwardly seeming normal career path. At the same time, so many of our guests shared stories of their experiences in the ordinary world and not feeling like a fit for the path they're on, that I wanted to focus a bit on those stories. For some, there's disillusionment. For some, there's a shift in path. And I think the difference between a pioneer and everyone else is whether or not the path is taken. Many of our guests share the moment they had this realization. Let's listen in as Jackie Schaefer describes the moment she had this realization. 
I always had this very common experience of loving the writing part of being a litigator. I love the creativity and coming up with the legal theory and doing the research and weaving it together with the evidence. But I really disliked this sort of universal scramble that, you know, I always experienced. I saw my colleagues always, you know, just scrambling when something was due, you knew that you couldn't, um, <laughs> you couldn't talk to anyone, you know, in the office because it was a, a team scramble, right? Like the paralegals were scrambling, the legal assistants, you know, the attorneys. And it really had a lot to do with, you know, the technology and the limited technology, honestly, where everything is so manual. And that's still how, you know, most litigation firms operate. Um, including in government, where right before it's due, you know, you're, you have to check all the citations and make sure that everything you're saying is super accurate. And I saw, you know, so many of the problems related to this sort of administrative burden and how we're all just bogged down. All these knowledge workers are bogged down with all these administrative tasks. And I was just thinking, like, if there was a way to give people better tools, you know, whether it's technology combined with human capital, like other, you know, give people better tools to reduce that administrative burden, then we could change the system. And, you know, you're always making recommendations as a lawyer. And I sort of always wanted to follow through and build something to solve the problem. <laughs> and you don't often have that chance as a lawyer to be the one, you know, building it you can analyze and, and identify what needs to happen. And so I think lawyers should really embrace that side of them. That's like, okay, not only did I spot the issue, not only did I visualize how we can solve it, but maybe I could build something to solve it. The incredible administrative burden of knowledge work was a common theme among our guests. And the drain of that work on those with the training, experience, and ability to be strategic advisors came through loud and clear. Here, Jason Barnwell shares the story of the moment he understood that his idea value didn't align with the traditional business model. We are running an M&A deal and we're doing the lead up to the closing process. So when you do these transactions, you have to solicit consents from the people who own the company to let the transaction go through, depending on the, the governance model. And as part of that, you have to disclose a lot of features uh, and details of the transaction so that that solicitation of consent is effective because people have to know what they're signing up for. And I was the most junior associate on the transaction. And the way that we were assembling the consents, which if you look at it, it's basically a giant stack of paper of different types of artifacts, right? So it's the agreement and plan of merger and basically a distribution waterfall and like specific proceeds. And then it gets into a bunch of other, lots of other artifacts. You know, it's a stack of paper that's probably somewhere between a half ream and a ream thick. And these get FedExed out to, you know, the, the shareholders. And the way we were doing it was a bucket brigade, wherein there was a set of primary documents that were then put onto a copy machine. And so we were making a copies of that and putting those into stacks. So now you're already having quality problems in as much as the documents are just getting less readable. So I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. And then the way we were assembling them was we were doing a bucket brigade where you'd literally walk through the room and you'd have a person go and grab one of each and you'd build a stack. And then you pull the, the effectively the specific uh, sheet for that shareholder. And then you drop it in a FedEx envelope and we'd have a, a whole, literally a table of them. And we'd have, and that's what we were doing. And so I went to one of uh, my colleagues and I said, you know, I'm pretty sure I can automate all of this. Like, I, I think literally I can do a mail merge and some Adobe script and I can send everything to that printer over there. And what we will get is not just a clean 
version of all the documents because we're not doing copies of that first copy. Like, so the reading quality will be much better, but I'm pretty sure I can do a mail merge that would templatize and fill out the specific proceeds for the shareholders. So like literally we're just pulling them off the top, dropping them in and we're done. And we're not inhaling ozone, you know, walking through this copy room. My colleague was like, well, well you know, that's an interesting idea, but I, you know, I don't really trust that. And like, what happens if it, like, basically all the things that we are taught to do to say like, well, but what about this? And what about that? And I was like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. We can test this really quickly. And they'll either all be right or they'll all be wrong. And they're like, yeah, I appreciate that, but like, we're good. And it wasn't until several weeks later that I saw the bill that I realized like, oh, well, the incentives here are not aligned for real efficiency. And I don't think anybody's being nefarious, to be clear. I, I just think it's, it's all like, you know, where does the gravity pull us, right? Like, wh where does it move us uh, in, within our preference set? It was then that I realized that the way that I wanted to produce value was maybe not aligned with that business model. Jeff Carr shared a similar story that I found all too relatable. It started almost as day one for me as a lawyer. One of the first things I did as a baby lawyer, it was before I went into the international trade work, was I did litigation, large case litigation. And part of the firm did maritime financing work. Another part of the firm did what we called the tracks of their deals which was the inevitable litigation that arose out of ship construction right. contracts. And I spent two months of my life flying from Washington, D.C. every Sunday night to Newport News, Virginia on a little puddle jumper plane with a couple of senior associates, junior associates, and a paralegal team and some admin going to a bank warehouse building. And we were delivered boxes of documents to do document review. And my job at that point in time was to identify documents to be copied for use by the litigators later. We had this whole team of people, 12 people, and we were spending 10 hours a day literally looking at documents and putting pieces of green construction paper where we wanted copying to start, red construction paper where we wanted copying to stop. And we could only get yeah. 50 boxes a day. Those were the rules of engagement in this particular thing. We were billing the customer travel time. We were billing the customer, you know, 10 hours of work each time, kind of an opportunity cost kind of billing approach, astronomical expenses, even back then in, in the early 80s. And my job was not to actually read the documents. It wasn't actually to find stuff that was going to be useful. It was literally to decide what was going to be copied or not. Next stage of team would be dealing with those things. And I thought, this is just boneheaded. This just didn't make sense to me even back then. For Alex Sue, similar moments inspired a kind of self-reflection that I think many of us can relate to. In this clip, Alex tells the story of that realization and also provides a helpful tool for thinking about one's talents and whether they're aligned with the role. Looking back now, I think it, it's really hard to say whether it was truly a good fit because I think the job does evolve as you go from a junior level to a more senior level. But at the time, I was a junior associate, and I made this list because when I started working in big law, I thought it was such a great job from the outside. But when you got in at the junior levels, it was very demanding. It was very much focused on attention to detailed work. It was focused on, on solitary work, like legal research and, and drafting motions, because I was a litigation associate. And so those were kind of things that I wasn't really... I didn't go to law school to do those things. I wanted to work with people. I wanted to go to court, make an argument. But instead, I was focused on just being in an office and just doing research and solitary work. So 
I was like, okay, well, let me see if this is right for me. Let me write a list of things I've done in the past. I'll do one column of things that I've been good at and, and, and done well with. I'll create another column that says, you know, these are the things I struggle at. And so I had a good sense of my strengths and weaknesses after making that list. And I realized that the role at the junior levels at a big law firm, all of the things that I was responsible for doing were things that I was not good at. And none of the things that I was good at uh, was involved in, in the job description. This kind of self-awareness was shown by Christian Lang, who talked about the role of the trusted advisor versus that of a builder and how he knew which would bring more satisfaction to his life. A quick background point about myself. I am very deliberately not a big planner. I'm not somebody who sits down and thinks about where I'm trying to get long-term and tries to stay on a certain path. Like I very much am a keep your head on a swivel, play the cards you're dealt, and make the most of opportunities as they present themselves. I entered the law firm thinking it was unlikely I was going to be there for an extended period of time, and I ended up being the last man standing in the 2010 class at NYU's, at uh, Davis Polk's M&A group, and really enjoyed practice in a lot more than I think a lot of people do at the, in the associate ranks in the firm. Never seriously entertained the notion of continuing the career, but ended up being there a lot longer than I thought. When it came time to really start thinking about what would come next, I kind of took a step back and I was like, okay, what do I actually need to build the life I'm looking to have? And, and that would be fulfilling. And I've always been somebody who's been, and this is part of the reason why I didn't think I would want to stay practicing law. I've always been somebody who's been very interested and satisfied by building and creating things. And, you know, I think to be happy as a lawyer, you know, you got to want to be somebody else's trusted advisor. You're, it's a, it's a, agent, it's a service industry. It's an agency role and that's deeply meaningful and honorable work. Certain people love that sort of work and certain other people don't. And so I knew I wanted to create and start and build something. I knew I wanted to do something that would have future relevance. I didn't want to do something that just paid the bills for my lifetime and then went away and wasn't a building block of you know, human progress. In fact, self-awareness is so important that Kat Moon has made it part of her curriculum at Vanderbilt. In the legal problem solving course, we start from the foundation of self-awareness because self-awareness must precede true empathy. and. So we start by building self-awareness just as a group of people who've come together for this learning experience. And we start also by applying some of the human-centered design methods to the student's own professional experience. So they think about their journey, right? They kind of do a journey map. What is my journey through the legal profession going to look like? And it's so fascinating because without fail, there will be a handful of students who have epiphanies. And so mm -hmm. I hear stories. One woman came to me and she said, you know, I thought something was wrong with me because I keep going on these interviews with these big law firms and it just never goes well for me. And I might even get an offer, but I feel like I'm failing at this. Mm -hmm. And so she reveals that through this discovery process we did in class, she figured out her path, which is a different path. And she said, I never felt like I had permission to walk a different path. Now, once the light bulb has gone off, you still have to move across the threshold. And many potential pioneers don't make it past this point because they, understandably, value the comfort and safety of the known. Moving into the unknown requires action and a certain degree of tolerance for ambiguity. Now, we all know stories of our culture where there's a hero who receives a gift of some time that helps them bridge this world from the ordinary into the extraordinary and transforms the story. For many of us along this path, that gift comes in the form of multidisciplinary colleagues who bring divergent thinking and divergent skills to the table and help hone our own sense of curiosity. 
Let's listen in to Dan Lina as he talks about the transformative effect of having those with technical expertise on his journey. You know, we have too many of these conversations where we don't have people of technical expertise in the room and we need more people who have some CS background who come into the law. And then we need to find more ways to get like some of my colleagues in the computer science department in more of these conversations so that they can help us. Just what you said, what's possible, what's not possible. How do we imagine where we want to be in 10, 20, 40, 50 years if we don't have the people with the deep expertise working with us to help us understand what might be possible, might be, might not be possible today, but this is where computer science and computation is going. And these, this is the foundation we would need to put in place to help us get there. One of the biggest challenges for lawyers is mastering divergent thinking. Most of us fall on a spectrum from abstract to practical thinking, but key to change is remaining open to a different way of thinking and approaching problem solving. Heidi Gardner talked a little bit about this. Let's listen in. One of the pandemic projects that I tackled with our team was launching a psychometric tool, the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. And it helps people through a very short online self-assessment understand their strengths along various behavioral dimensions that relate to smart collaboration. And one of those dimensions is what kind of problem they're drawn to. So are they complex thinkers? Do they love the big theoretical abstract problems? They like to make connections between distinct ideas and they're the ones at the meeting who are always on and on about, ah, yes, and here's how we can think about this differently in frameworks and the abstractions. And then there's the people who sit in the meeting and say, okay, but how's that going to work? What do we need? How do we put an action plan around that? And I have to say the people who are complex thinkers tend to look down their nose at the concrete thinkers. They tend to say, oh, they're so mundane. They're so boring, right? Whereas the people who are concrete pragmatists think that the other ones have their head in the clouds and so forth. And it's really easy to be irritated or disparage people who think differently from us. But if you want innovation, like we've just said, you need the big blue sky thinkers combined with the people who are going to put it into practice. Kat Moon drives home this point when talking about the need for different voices around the table. There are all kinds of tools and methods. You can apply a three, five, or seven phase design thinking method, right? Mm -hmm. You can um, use a double diamond method. Like there's, there are all kinds of tools out there that can be very valuable in specific situations. And if you don't start with the fundamental mindsets in place, you're not going to get to the best result you can get, regardless of whatever tool method that you're using. So for me, it really comes down to how do we reframe the mindset so that we're coming from this place of being able to do work in a truly human-centric way. And for me, some of those mindsets, clearly empathy, intellectual curiosity, radical collaboration, and, and, I, and I continue to use the phrase radical collaboration even when people make faces when I say it in the law. For two reasons. One, radical in that we do need to cross-pollinate who is collaborating, right? We simply are never going to get the best result if the only people around the table are a bunch of lawyers who were trained to think and problem solve in exactly the same way. We just won't. I don't care how smart this group of people is because we are all trained exactly the same way. And one of the true values of radical collaboration, one, not the only one, is bringing a group of people together who have been trained in disciplines that problem solve differently. Like there's incredible value to that. Not only bringing together people who simply have different life experiences, that's another valuable point of radical collaboration. So collaboration in law in and of itself is often radical. So how does one start on a personal journey 
that rivals those of the pioneers and pathfinders we've heard so far on the podcast. Well, there are three takeaways we want to leave you with from what we heard. Number one, I've already talked about believing that there had to be a better way, and that's a good starting point. But at the most fundamental level, you also have to have a level of self-awareness and practice self-reflection in order to know yourself and your own way down the journey. Know what you're good at, or Alex Sue says, know what your superpowers are. Following your talents may mean a shift in career path and moving from status quo to something involves more risk, as Alex explains here. I think the biggest one is recognizing what you're good at and what you want to do versus what you feel like you should do. And I think a lot of lawyers feel like they should be doing things. They should be going to get this job, to line themselves up for that job that pays X amount minimum, and always worry about what they should be doing. I think you really got to look back at your own personal history, just like when I created two columns of things that I was good at and, and what I was bad at, and really think through what your superpowers are, where your talents are, and then head in that direction. And maybe that means that you have to go outside the traditional legal career path, but maybe not. I think leaning on your strengths will always put you in, the, in better and better places. And I would say from my personal experience, figuring that out was huge. But second was being willing to take a step down in terms of whether it's compensation or where you are in the career journey, like you know maybe a lower entry level position that's aligned with your strengths. I think that's really helped as well as joining an industry that's growing. Because if you combine those two factors, you can grow pretty fast and do work that, that's really meaningful. So that's what I would say. And I would obviously, that's been my experience. I don't know if everyone has that experience, but I've seen that pattern, not just with myself, but with a lot of people I, that, who are successful and I admire. So that would be the advice I would give. This leads to takeaway number two. For lawyers, change can mean a certain amount of discomfort whether it's the literal loss of status that comes with taking a career step sideways or downward, or simply being in a room with divergent thinkers. Here, Dan Lena discusses the importance of embracing discomfort on the pioneering journey. One of the reasons why I was so attracted to Northwestern is there's a history of interdisciplinary work here, and there had already been a foundation put into place between the law school and the business school and the engineering school and the medical school. There's some classes in place already, and I've been able to pick up on that. And we've been putting more classes in place, a lot more engagement, having these discussions. It's a lot of work. It's it's difficult. It's, it's a lot easier in some ways to just uh, stay in our comfortable silo. And, you know, you and I, Steve, could talk about litigation and the federal rules of civil procedure and motions to dismiss. And <laughs> please, please, please not. Let's please not do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, wow, I, I'm really deep there. I feel comfortable. I feel smart right. when I'm talking about those things. When some computer scientist talks about machine learning, I kind of feel dumb. I feel vulnerable to say, I don't understand what you're talking about. And That's a tough feeling for lawyers, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tough feeling for everyone, but I think especially in law, we reward people oftentimes. You're supposed to be the smartest person in the room. And I think that maybe sometimes reward people for talking with a lot of certainty and don't apply a lot of scrutiny to maybe what they're saying. And people get this sense that like I can be loud and show people I'm correct, or I just don't dare expose my ignorance. And that's not good for learning. It's not good for interdisciplinary work. And finally, takeaway number three is you aren't alone, so you don't have to go it alone. While we've talked a lot about individual journeys in this recap, it's important to understand that one doesn't have to feel discomfort alone. Being connected to one another in the new world of the legal profession helps us overcome challenges and stay focused on the goal. Here, JM discusses the importance of finding a like-minded community in the pioneering journey. 
one of the reasons that change scales slowly in our industry is that that hard work of cultural change and, and kind of emotional acceptance that, you know, the future of the industry may not look exactly like the industry today. I think that work has to be done within every organization. And the first two to three people at within each firm don't have that support structure that we did, that I was fortunate enough to walk into. And then, so I think building different types of communities, you know, however amorphous across the industry, really important. I don't like the word networking anymore because it, it's so inadequate to describe what's needed. Friends, you need friends and peers and kind of uh, fellow travelers who really understand, you know, the challenges that you face, who have experienced some of the similar constraints, see some of the same opportunities. And I think Joe Borstein put it best when he was trying to describe like why a lot of us are such good friends. It's because we see both the pain and the promise of the industry. And then so having that shared ethos, I think is really important. So I encourage you know, allied professionals or even, you know, current practitioners who are thinking about a different path, I really encourage them to leave the four walls, metaphorically now, of their organization and, and meet people who are doing this, not only similar work, but, you know, feel similarly to how you're feeling about the industry. We're going to end on Jay's call to adventure for us to leave the four walls of the ordinary world and enter the world of those seeking to drive change. But if you only take one thing from this recap, I hope it's this. Every adventure begins with a single step. Let your curiosity fuel your desire to take that first step. Thanks for listening. We're going to take next week off as the summer comes to a close. We'll be back the Wednesday after Labor Day weekend with a new slate of guests. In the meantime, have a great week and a great holiday, and we'll talk to you later.